she's alive. Alive! Hello, and welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror, film, and feminism. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls, and your podcast host. For the next few months, we'll be tracing the lineage of female monsters in horror cinema. In each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a monster movie or a monster double bill. And in today's episode, we're going to be discussing two female-centric takes on the Frankenstein story. First, we're going to be picking apart The Bride from 1985, a film I genuinely wish I'd known about before with the maddest cast ever. Sting playing Dr. Frankenstein, Clancy Brown as the monster, and Jennifer Beals as the titular bride. They're also supported by Geraldine Page, Quentin Crisp, Carrie Elvis, Phil Daniels, Timothy Spall, Anthony Higgins, David Rappaport, just insane. The film picks up the story after Dr. Frankenstein creates a mate for his monster, a woman who he calls Eva, who promptly rejects the male creature. Things get complicated when the doctor himself is attracted to his creation and teaches her how to be a proper Victorian woman. Following that, we'll be covering Frankenhooker, a horror comedy from 1990 that sees Dr. Frankenstein reinvented as a New Jersey medical dropout student who rebuilds his girlfriend with body parts from exploded sex workers after she's accidentally killed by a lawnmower. It's a whole thing. I'm joined in this episode by the super smart and super hilarious writer, podcaster and comedian Jordan Searles to discuss the good, the bad and the absolutely batshit bits of both films. As usual, be warned that we will be spoiling both films pretty much from the very beginning. And these are both, to be fair, retellings of the Frankenstein story. So take the spoiler warning as you will. In either case, enjoy Jordan and mine's discussion about the bride and Frankenhooker. Jodine, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and for watching these two absolutely insane movies with me. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so this whole series of the podcast is looking at female monsters on screen and how they've evolved and how they've been presented through horror cinema. Uh, so we're going to be chatting about The Bride and Frankenhooker, which are both kind of female-centric reimaginings, which which is kind of a generous word for them, reimaginings of the Mary Shelley Frankenstein story. Um, so to kick off, had you seen either one of these films before? I saw Frankenhooker before, so I was watching mm-hmm. it for the second time this time. Mm-hmm. And had you seen The Bride before? No, this is my first time seeing The Bride, but, you know, it's it's Jennifer Beals. Jennifer Beals is, like, one of my favorite actresses, so it was just great to see her in this film and she's really great in it oh my god I, I didn't know that that's amazing I love it when those kind of kismet moments happen when someone I get someone to talk about a film and they find something that they really love about it and they hadn't seen it before so I'm glad that's also happened here she is like one of the best like physical actresses in my opinion and I would uh I should write an essay about her she's so good anyway <laughs> Please do. Genuinely, please do. So let's kick off talking about The Bride from 1985. 
desired something beyond love. I might make the new woman, Clavel, independent, free, and a fit companion for the genius of Frankenstein. He created something beyond woman. Beautiful. Where did I come from? She'll break a few hearts, will she not? she chose. What is she? You must obey me. I will not obey you. You didn't create me. You didn't create me. As a matter of fact, Jennifer Beals, The Bride. This was also my first time seeing it. So what did you make of the film overall? I think that there were a lot of great elements. It was one of those things where I saw that it had bad readings and bad reviews. And then I watched it and I was confused because like my main gripe with it is that it's too long. But otherwise, I think that the writing is really smart. I think that the performances are really great. Um, and I like this, you know, the kind of conversation that, like, it presents, because it's... So it's like, he builds Sting. <laughs> Sting playing Frankenstein. Yes. <laughs> builds a woman to be with the monster but she's so beautiful um, and so different from the original monster that he decides, no, you know, I'd rather just have her for myself. And it's just this weird thing where he created her, that he mm. clearly like wants to have sex with her. Mm. And you're just kind of waiting the whole time for him to like try to do it. And then when he does, he's, you know, admittedly terrible. <laughs> like, and also, like, uh, the monster just going on this journey where he's just, like, trying to find himself and making a friend and joining the circus. And I thought that that was really cool. I also really enjoyed the fact that there was, like, a connection between the two. When, mm -hmm. one, of, when one of the monsters felt pain, the other one also felt that pain. Like, there was, like, a connection to them that I thought was really interesting. Also, I thought it was interesting that the film recognizes that Percy Shelley exists. <laughs> because there's the part where they're talking about poetry and yes. Dr. Frankenstein is talking about Keats. Mm -hmm. And then the bride is like, no, but Percy Shelley is a better writer. And it's just this weird argument that they have. And then uh, there's this there's this really telling line where it's like uh, something like the problem with women being free is that they're free to despise us. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. I wrote that line down in my notes when I was watching this. The trouble with free women is that they're free to despise us. 
And I love that it's sort of uh, Frankenstein's friend who tells him that because it's like it's such an interesting film. I'll admit that like when I found it for when I was researching the season, I expected it to be sort of silly and quite camp, perhaps kind of not as as intense as it actually is. But I find it really interesting as well that how it sort of starts where the all of our usual depictions and adaptations of the Frankenstein story usually end. So the monster's created, the monster's found Frankenstein. He's convinced him to create the bride for him. And we the film really starts with her creation. But instead of ending there, it's like everything else that we, well, at least I hadn't seen really before. Because usually in all of the Frankenstein adaptations, the bride is created towards the end and then she's usually... Uh, she usually dies at the end as well. So what did you make of this interpretation of The Bride specifically? Um, I actually have not seen The Bride of Frankenstein, like the original film, which now mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to, to see. Because this film feels like a commentary on that story. Mm. Like, almost like fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, what if... Like, what if the bride came and she was beautiful and she looked, like, super normal, mm-hmm. but she still didn't really know how to exist in the human world? But mm-hmm. then she learns, and she learns faster than mm. the first monster. She takes to humanity way quicker, and it's... I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, there's... One thing that I feel like I need to say that mm-hmm. um, I don't feel like anyone really thought about while they were making the film is that Jennifer Beals is black. Um, <laughs> and I just thought that that's really interesting. I mean, Jennifer Beals is very pale. So I think oh, maybe when they cast her, they didn't know that she was black. But I do think that it's really interesting that the Bride of Frankenstein is a black woman. And she's just like hanging out in Budapest like... Like, being trained to impress all of these white people. <laughs> I just, I don't know. It's its really, that kind of changes yeah. it a little bit for me. No, it totally does. What layers kind of, of additional meaning do you think the fact that Jennifer Beals is a black woman brings to this retelling? Well, because she, so she's trying to assimilate into this very like anglo society where there mm-hmm. are certain you know things that she needs to learn there's the part where she meets the the older woman who's like a countess or a dame or something and she has to impress her with her manners and like she's impressing everyone and everyone's super mm-hmm. into her and then she sees a cat and she's never been told what a cat was before and she just freaks out and then suddenly yeah. it's like it's almost like she's assimilating into whiteness and then she's afraid mm. of the cat. And then suddenly it's like she does not belong there. And mm. her being like black and also not human, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it's those those two things like working together. Because like mm. it reminded me a little bit of Belle. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen the film. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah, the Amazante film. Yeah. Yeah, it's like Belle is trying, you know, she's part of high society. She has the money. She has the inheritance. She has Mm. the status. She has the clothes. But she's black. So 
there's this interesting like fascination with like sexual fascination with her but also this feeling that she is below everyone and like her Mm. status so you kind of see that with Carrie Elwes character where it's like he's sexually fascinated by the Mm -hmm. bride but he doesn't respect her and Mm. the same thing for Sting like Sting Mm -hmm. like like raises her to be you know basically of the same level of intelligence Mm -hmm. and manner as him but he still for some reason doesn't really see her as a full person Mm -hmm. and it just it's so interesting I mean it's like almost just like it doesn't matter like how much you do like you're still black so there's always going to be this feeling that you have to work harder and compensate Mm -hmm. more and be more perform humanity mm-hmm. more carefully than other people because you could say you know the bride is technically a monster but it's mm-hmm. dr frankenstein who's actually monstrous as carrie elwes who is actually monstrous like almost every man that she interacts with is bad the women are actually mm-hmm. much better which i think is interesting that like women are totally fine with her but men are just very weird to her <laughs> You're right, like the way, with the Carrie Elvis character, I find him really interesting because he's so instantly, they're kind of both into each other from the very first encounter. And it's sort of an awakening for her as well of her learning about her own sexuality and her own kind of agency. And that's also the origin of like Frankenstein's jealousy towards her because he is sort of grooming her to be the perfect woman for him, not to be a woman and discover herself as a person in herself. But that moment when she has that encounter with Carrie Elvis's character and he sort of discards her straight away where he's like, Oh yeah, I'm done. I'm done with her. She just threw herself at me. You know, this over sexualizing of her, which again, kind of gains a whole nother layer of, of meaning of the way that black women have always been over sexualized in cinema. Yeah, because it's like she passes as long as she acts a certain way. But, it, mm. but as soon as she stops acting the way that they want her to, suddenly she's she's not. She she like passes into whiteness and then she doesn't, mm. you know, like it's very precarious. It made me think a little bit of the, the classic film Showboat, which like has a reveal of a woman ending up being partially black and even though she has like assimilated perfectly into the society everyone kind of turns on her after that i was actually going to ask you to expand a little bit on jennifer beals and her performance uh you mentioned that you really like her and kind of her physical performance and this is i've seen her in biggest things that she's done but i've never seen her really do something as layered as she's going here it's both a very intensely physical performance and also demands a lot from her just very focused on her face as well throughout the whole film there's these very beautiful close-ups of her yeah yeah i mean because there's because i mean there's portions of the film where she can't really speak Mm. or she's trying to find the words but so much of so much of her emotional state so much of what we learn about her is in her eyes her head her mouth 
the way that she reacts to things, her body, mm. you know, when she when she sees the cat, her entire body like tenses up and she just like hisses at the cat, which is like a very loud hiss. Mm-hmm. And it's like she does so much without really saying like she doesn't have that many lines at all. Mm. Um until near the end when they're like arguing about like literature and and when she's like, oh well you know you created me but you can never have me which is such a great scene. It's an amazing scene. Like it reminds me also uh she one of her most known performances is Devil in a Blue Dress. Which, mm-hmm. like, I hate to spoil a, a very old novel and, like, a 20-something-year-old film, but the twist of Devil in a Blue Dress is that she is that she is biracial. <laughs> um, because she's seen as a white woman through most of it, and mm-hmm. everybody's constantly asking, why is she hanging out with all these Black people? And the twist is that she is partially Black. Um... So a lot of, and of course, like, because that's a noir, so much of it is, like, in her body language. Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't move like a white woman, but she's supposed to be a white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, like, I'm trying to think of other, like, I actually, some of my favorite performances of hers. Have you seen her in Vampire's Kiss? <laughs> I have, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, like, that was like, because I mean, Flashdance, of course, there was like a body double for a lot of the mm-hmm. dudes, even though I think that she's great in Flashdance as well. But in Vampire's Kiss, like, she's so good at, like, coming off as a supernatural being. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, people think about Vampire's Kiss, they only think about Nicolas Cage. But mm-hmm. she's fantastic in it. And she's the vampire that, that sets it off. She's the one that bites him. And I just love she... I think that this maybe is like her first performance that I've seen where she's not really being a sexual person. So that was like an interesting layer to see that she's not, she's not being sexual, which is what I know her as. Hmm. It makes me think of like an alternate history where she was, where she was able to do more art house films and just the kind of performances that we missed out on with that. Like, I totally feel like, she could do like a sultry Isabel Huppert kind of thing if they if she was given the space to do that. I don't know why I immediately stuck to Isabel Huppert, but I was thinking about Elle. <laughs> Maybe because Isabel Huppert, when she plays kind of she's she, a lot of her characters or most iconic ones are very sexual women like they've got a lot of agency in how they handle themselves and present themselves sexually so they've got they are fully kind of in control of their bodies and their sexuality at least the, the performances that i'm thinking of kind of in l even in something as extreme as the piano teacher but what i found really interesting about jennifer beals and the bride is that she actually has that same vibe of sort of being much more in control of her desires as she discovers them. Whereas everyone, especially Frankenstein, keeps trying to just see her as a, as a piece of meat and to over-sexualize her and to control her, but she's having none of it. So the film really kind of shifts, I think, once she starts 
speaking and understanding herself and under, trying to understand and come to grips with the world around her and reading and speaking to other people kind of that control that Frankenstein has over her really starts to um, disappear yeah because I mean essentially it's kind of like um, like oh yeah you built something and you can't control it but it's even mm -hmm. more interesting because it's a woman who is being groomed and who like in her learning in her education she she realizes that she's being groomed and she tries to yeah. put a stop to it so what do you think and so go ahead I was going to ask you kind of to what do you think about this relationship between Frankenstein and the bride who he he gives her a name her name is Eva in the film yes Eva um very you know classic Spengali you know yeah like I I have it's just weird he's trying to do something charitable for his monster and then he's just, but he's just too selfish to see it through. <laughs> and, and it's kind of weird because I'm constantly wondering what his end game is. Like, because mm. it takes a while for him to admit that he made her. And when he does admit it, it's like a trump card. It's like, oh, you think that you have agency. You think that you're your own person, but you're not. Mm. You're my person. I own you. And mm. it's such an interesting one. Because he wants to, like, at that point, he wants to fuck her. But that's such a weird thing to say to a person that you want to fuck. That, like, oh, I made you. And now I want to have sex with you. <laughs> it's like, if you but, you, but you taught her to be intelligent. And any intelligent person would know that that's fucked up. So it's I don't know. It's like he, he did too good of a job. He's too much of a snob. <laughs> like, sting, stings Frankenstein, uh, which is not a sentence I ever thought I would ever be saying out loud. Stings Frankenstein is like, starts off as sort of a, like, you know, like a illuminated man. Because he has this conversation with his friend who's like, you know, I'm going to make her a new woman. She's going to be free and independent and smart. She's going to be equal uh, to men. You know, she's going to be just as good as us. Which, in that very monologue that he does, kind of betrays the way that he really feels about women, which is that they're not equal to men. Um, but, like, he starts off in the first half of the film kind of having this mission of, no, I don't just want a a woman that I can fuck and, and have as my property. I want her to be a person. And then he does this like 180 when she actually does become a person and rejects him. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I read Frankenstein in high school and I'm, hmm. I didn't really like most of the books that we read in school. I specifically mm -hmm. also remember like, talking shit about King Arthur for long periods of time, but when we got to Frankenstein, um, it was just so fascinating as a story, and I had always felt like the way that the story had been told to me, and the way that it was thought of in pop culture was hmm. not how the book was. The book was a man who creates another man, but the man isn't good enough for him, like not smart enough, not mm -hmm. human looking enough mm -hmm. and rejects him. And then of course the monster systemically kills 
everyone that Frankenstein loves and then kills Frankenstein. He's like basically like a slasher villain, but like a slasher villain that you're, it's like if you're, I was like rooting for Michael Myers while reading Frankenstein. Like, yes, all people, he deserves to die. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I love in this version that Dr. Frankenstein is a person who is kind of like undone by his snobbery. He's mm. undone by his very like white Anglo idea of what a person is. Because I mean, when you look at the monster who in, in my high school class, we named him Adam for the first mm-hmm. man. And it's mm-hmm. so interesting that like not a lot of adaptations name him Adam when it's like, it's right there. Just name him yeah. Adam. Um, <laughs> but when we look at uh, uh, the the monster who gets named Victor in this film, mm-hmm. played wonderfully by Clancy Brown, it's like Clancy Brown on the outside doesn't really, you know, he doesn't mm-hmm. look entirely human. But mm-hmm. on the inside, he's one of the more like one of the most emotional men in the film Mm -hmm. one of the men who's like most in touch with his emotions and of course you know his um his friendship with uh the best character in this movie whose name i do not know i need to look at ronaldo Ronaldo, yes yes his friendship (laughs) with ronaldo is so beautiful because the thing about it is is that though dr frankenstein is like a high society man and he has all this power and all this money he doesn't really have any like tender friendships Mm. and this and his monster victor immediately makes a friend and it's a beautiful friendship where they where they talk about love and they talk about life and you know he because we we watch we watch Victor mature as well. Like he never like speaks well in the way mm-hmm. that Eva does, but he mm-hmm. becomes this really emotionally in tune, gentle man. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, becomes, I mean, the ending, you know, he becomes Eva's partner and it, mm-hmm. but it makes total, and it makes total sense at the end when Eva chooses him because he's so kind and he listens <laughs> it's like that's 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 what we want that like that's what women want in heterosexual the, relationships for the man the to listen <laughs> the bar is so low <laughs> the bar is in hell but like yeah And Clancy Brown, oh yeah, Clancy Brown is also fantastic physical oh. performer, fantastic vocal yes. performer. Love Clancy Brown. I love him. And it's, this is such an interesting film because I was going to ask you kind of what you thought about their dual journeys. You kind of mentioned at the beginning, it's a little bit too long, in my opinion. Like it's it's about two hours long. And I think, you know, you could lose about 20 minutes of that. But I find it really interesting that we constantly keep in touch with both the monsters. We see Victor evolve and grow and change, and we see the bride evolve and grow and change. And they have a very kind of 
almost emotional supernatural connection with each other like you mentioned and then they sort of meet by accident uh before you know sort of midway through the film so i wanted to kind of ask you what do you make about this dual storyline of the monsters you know becoming more human and the humans around them turning out to be very monstrous yeah i mean i i think that it's i think that it's great i think that it's like maybe the best like element of the film is that you get to what i mean because like when you're the great way to get invested in a romantic story is, you know, you become invested in both characters so that when they Mm -hmm. come together, it's like, we know who they are and we know why they complement each other. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I think that it's a very, like as a romance structured very well. Having seen this film and, you know, you have a, a whole podcast about romantic movies. How do you think this is more of a horror film or a romance film? I think it's more of a romance. It reminds me more of um, like Jane Austen, honestly. <laughs> cool. Okay. More than Mary Shelley. Yeah. Yeah. It seems more Jane Austen than Mary Shelley. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's very much like a, it's, you know, it's a story about manners Mm-hmm. And about, you know, social status. Like, Victor has to join the circus because that is the only community that will take him. Mm. Uh, I know. So, and she is of a higher status. So it's kind of like one of those like classic romances where the woman is high society and the man is lower society or vice versa. And it's like, are they going to end up together or... Is the richer one going to partner with the richer person and have kind of an empty relationship or not? Like it's you know it's it's yeah, Titanic. Titanic. It's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is Titanic. Before we move on to Frankenhooker, what did you make kind of of the design of it? Like the the sets, the the lavishness, the look and feel of the film. I thought it was I thought it was beautiful. It's interesting cuz like when I when I saw that it existed, I thought it would be mm-hmm. cheap and then I watched it and mm. I was like, "No, they put a lot of money into this. They wanted this to do well." Which was like the most surprising thing. And oh my god, the costumes, every dress that Jennifer <laughs> Beals yeah. was in when she's on the horse and she's in like kind of like the blue like suit dress thing. I was mm. like, "I want that god <laughs> so good uh yeah no i thought it was i thought it was really pretty i mean i thought of course like the the only set that i didn't like was the the tavern that that victor and ronaldo go into that tavern looked like a very that looked like a wishbone set <laughs> um, but like every everything else looked great. I loved especially uh, the beginning scenes with Frankenstein's laboratory and all of those, and then his house with all the billowing curtains. It felt it felt like a like a sting music video, to be honest. You know, all the bi- billowing curtains, the the intense stairs through you know silk, 
and you know all that bright blue neon lights and the in the lab when he's creating the bride and kind of all the all the massive ropes that are holding her up as she's sort of being brought into life i thought it was really gorgeous and there was like some gory elements like he had you know human bits and pieces sort of in jars all around his lab his lab assistant quentin crisp the supporting cast in this film is insane i don't even understand what half of them are doing in it and it's not like they have massive roles but the fact that quentin crisp is his lab assistant and geraldine page is like his housekeeper i just really floored me oh my god love geraldine page in this film also a very physical performance because she doesn't speak very much Mm. but her eyes and her face really tells you everything and it's also great to see her start to like eva more than dr frankenstein it's great to see like her her alliance shifts and when he when he fires her i'm like happy for her because she doesn't have to be around him anymore Before we move on, is there anything about The Bride that you wanted to talk about that we haven't mentioned? No, not really. I mean, aside from Jennifer Beals, looks beautiful. <laughs> I mean, she's God, stunning in this. What a beautiful woman. Ah, she's so... I think this film really, really knows how to light her, how to frame her. She looks stunning. Yeah, the film knows how beautiful she is. It's... Mm. Ah, her eyes, those eyes, just beautiful, great, fantastic, love it. Like, if I had seen this when I was, like, a teenager, I would have been obsessed with it. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, to be honest. Me too. I really regret not discovering this film earlier. So, moving on to Frankenhooker, which you'd seen before, and I was watching for the first time for the purposes of this podcast. In 1931, the world was horrified by the motion picture Frankenstein. In 1935, horror turned to terror with the bride of Frankenstein. In 1990, the makers of Basket Case and Brain Damage bring you... Want a date? Frankenhooker. Jeffrey Franken has a plan. I just want to bring him back. He has the ingenuity. We need female body parts. He has everything he needs, except the raw materials. Just hold still. Excellent. Oh, my God. Onion! Jeffrey's creation is alive. Looking for some action? Oh, yeah. She's sexy. Want a date? I'm on my way home, but uh, thanks anyway. I, uh... And she's so to please. Listen, I'm looking for a very tall, attractive woman. She's purple. She's got fresh bars on her. She's in the bar! Now, a motion picture like no other. <laughs> a tender story of love and romance. What a A gripping tale of lust and revenge. <laughs> Frank and Hooker. Some assembly may be required. What did you make of the film when you first watched it? And how did your opinion change your rewatch? If it did? 
Well, I mean, Frankenhooker is kind of one of those films, um, one of those horror films that's like, <laughs> you know, it's supposed <laughs> yeah. to be campy. It's supposed to be like, it's supposed to be social commentary in a weird way. It's kind of like this weird kind of like camp horror that was really big in the, um, well, it depends on who, like, I mean, Herschel Gordon Lewis, like, it's mm-hmm. very reminiscent of that kind of work. Yeah. But also just, like, um, early early 90s and 80s camp horror. And, I mean, the... Frank Hennenlotter. Yeah, this was the director of Basket Case and Brain Damage, which I have seen Brain Damage. Yeah, I mean, Basket Case is a huge one. And Bad Biology, which is kind of like a really infamous cult film. (laughs) Have you you seen any of his other work? I have seen Basket Case. I I have not seen Bad Biology, but I was reading up about it just before jumping on the recording with you. And I was like, this sounds insane. I need to see it immediately. It's funny that you mentioned Herschel Gordon-Lewis because I was looking at Frank Henenlotter's work and he made a whole documentary about Herschel Gordon-Lewis and apparently never really referred to himself as a horror filmmaker. He always thought that he made exploitation films, which which is a really kind of throwback way of approaching your own work, I guess. It's kind of really putting his own work in a very particular a type of filmmaking, a very particular tradition of filmmaking. Well, yeah, and I mean exploitation, like like sex exploitation and black exploitation. It's like there's a degree of social commentary there, yeah. but it's but it's heightened and kind of distorted. And I mean, you see this here in Frankenhooker, where you know it's it's weirdly commenting on a conversation about. <laughs> whether like sex workers and are they safe and there's even there's that clip in it about the uh, legalizing sex work as a way to protect sex workers which is something that i support and i mean it's a debate that's been going on forever but yeah <laughs> the correct thing is to legalize it like i don't have a debate anymore um there's that and it also comments on the crack epidemic mm-hmm. of the 80s and 90s which is interesting like comments i feel is a generous term <laughs> but you know it gestures toward it <laughs> it's very much placed in its moment in time mm-hmm. where it's commenting on things that were actually going on at the time yeah commenting is a, is a generous term maybe winking um is is more appropriate for Frank and Hooker. But one of the things that I found interesting about watching these two back to back is the fact that they're both well, I mean, they're both obviously updates, very female-centric updates on the Mary Shelley story uh, Mary Shelley story, but also they both are really preoccupied with the idea of creating the quote unquote the perfect woman. And this is, you know, this is very comedic in nature and the whole scene and the premise of Jeffrey Franken going to kind of corralling a group of sex workers to try to pick out parts of them to make the perfect woman 
uh, is played for laughs. But what do you think about the, this idea of him sort of rebuilding his deceased fiance from bits of sex workers? I mean, that's it's wild. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's such it's such a wild idea. But I mean, it's almost like. Well, because, like, when we meet her very briefly mm. at the beginning, before she's um, mowed down by the lawnmower, <laughs> yeah. she talks about how she's overweight, which she's not. She's just, like, a regular-sized woman. <laughs> but everybody treats her like she's overweight. They don't want her to eat pretzels, which is such a weird thing. Like, pretzels don't make you fat. Like, I don't know. It could have been, like, chips or something. Like, pretzels at least have, like, some good starch in them. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's such yeah. a strange thing that you can't eat pretzels. And she talks about how Jeffrey, which, yeah, is that's his name, yeah, right? Jeffrey. Jeffrey he... <laughs> You find out that he stapled her stomach. Like, this is a guy that does not have a medical degree. He gets kicked out of multiple medical schools, but she lets him staple her stomach. And so, of course, it's fascinating that when he builds her, when he rebuilds her, he rebuilds her skinnier than she was. There's a scene when he revives her where he's like, I love you, I love you, but now, you know, I made you better. Now you're perfect. And it's obviously just about her body, but also the scene where he's measuring women's body parts and sort of literally taking them off. Like at one point he puts like a tick mark on a woman's ass and like that's the bit that ends up on on Elizabeth's kind of Frankenstein body. <laughs> Yeah, it was so odd watching him. Well, because, like, he goes and he's like, okay, so I need to bring a bunch of sex workers for this party. And then I'm from them, I'm going to pick my perfect woman. And he's just looking at all these different Mm. parts. And the whole time I'm just like, why don't you just kill one and cut off her head? It's such a weird concept that he just needs to put all of these parts together because by the time Elizabeth is put Mm -hmm. together, her head is paler than the rest of her (laughs) body. (laughs) So she's like, it just doesn't, it's so, it's so wild. Like he couldn't just like the pale one, like the palest woman, which is the redheaded Mm -hmm. woman with the bad tattoo. The whole time I'm just like, just pick her. Why do you, why are you looking at this Chinese woman? Why are you looking at this black woman? And it's just weird because it's like she becomes like different races. She's not just white at at the end. It's just so strange. Such a strange concept that she becomes like multiracial via her parts. It is wild. And it's also like, why would you, you know, why would you prefer to murder, say, I don't remember how many of them there were, but like, you know, there's a whole room full of women. Why do you want to murder 10 or 12 women instead of just one? Especially because he has such guilt about committing the murders that he has to drill into his own head, which is a hilarious scene where he's like giving all the exposition about what he's about to do while actually physically drilling into his own brain. Yeah, it's so it's it's so weird cuz it's just like you think that 
because you would think that he's doing it because he loves mm. Elizabeth and he just can't live without her. And, you know, that's why he's like preserving her head, you know, in preparation for this and waiting for a thunderstorm. <laughs> <laughs> and he knows exactly when the thunderstorm is coming, which is like great. Like, like weather reports are like an estimate. So why how does he perfectly clock when it's coming? <laughs> it's so weird but yeah like he he says that he loves her but then when he re- but the way that he rebuilds her and just the way that he goes about it kind of plays against that like he's still objectifying her and he still wants her to look quote unquote better mm-hmm. than she did before instead of just bringing her back <laughs> And what do you make of, you know, of Elizabeth as the as the monster in this film? Like when she is rebuilt and when she comes alive and um, goes on a rampage <laughs> to get laid <laughs> through New York City? Well, number one, incredible performance from Patty Mullen. Like, <laughs> just so so committed such an interesting physical performance i love the way that she moves her mouth and kind of like moves her head like it like it's cranking from side to side and even the way that she just kind of like she stiffens up her shoulders so that she can walk in that kind of like classic 30s like frankenstein walk and i just love like the way that she spouts her dialogue, the way that she turns her head, the way that she pushes like it's such a great physical performance. Love this woman. It's annoying to me that she was she wasn't in that many mm. films because she's so good. Can you just imagine like trying to get a part and being like, Well, here's my here's my reel. I was in Frankenhooker. <laughs> Here's some clips. Meanwhile, the guy that played Jeffrey, who is like, it's a very weird performance. He was in The Irishman. I don't even remember who he played in what? The Irishman, but it's like right here that his most recent film was The Irishman. And now I want to rewatch it to figure out who he is in that movie because I watched it. I don't remember what? him. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't remember him at all in The Irishman. Yes. This is like, it's shocking. Yes. Yes. Yes, the guy who plays Jeffrey, James Lorenz, was in The Irishman. <laughs> so he's doing, he's doing great. Fuck, yes. I have, oh my god. He's in like a lot of interesting films. He's in a, he's in another classic kind of exploitation horror film, Street Trash. Yeah. I don't, he's been in an Abel Ferrara movie. Like he's been in a Spielberg movie. He's in Bridge of Spies. He's in King of New York. Like this is a man who is working. He's in rope. He's in RoboCop three. <laughs> like, this is a man that went on to have a career, which is weird because like his performance is so sarcastic. Like every line that he says is sarcastic. Like when he's making when he take he takes the crack mm-hmm. from the um from the pimp the, yeah. the pimp being Zora who's <laughs> fantastic I love Zorro. love Zorro so good and Zorro is the the actor who plays Zorro is also in brain damage mm. um but so he takes the crack 
and he's making super crack. <laughs> super crack. Super crack is such, just like such a wild like it's something that only a white male director would create as super crack so he's making it and of course the clip from the talk show where the woman is deba- was debating with the host about how sex workers need to be protected mm-hmm. and he's just like watching it. he's just so sarcastically like no she's right she's right crack it's killing him it's killing him <laughs> it's just it's, like that line reading it's killing him so he's just i don't he's so sarcastic and then he he makes the super crack and his rationale is that like well it's already killing him i'm just speeding up yes. the process <laughs> you can see his cogs turning he's like i'm not really the villain in this you know i'm just putting them out of their misery like they if they don't want to smoke the crack then they won't i am simply presenting the crack to them (laughs) um and (laughs) the scene where they all smoke the crack is one of the wildest things ever (laughs) because i just kept on thinking all of these actresses were brought into this room and they are told get excited about crack like you're getting a new car like just the just the level of excitement they're just like ah they're like screaming they're just like grabbing the crack and you're like holding him down because he's like no don't smoke it don't smoke it and then they're just like whatever narc like And they're just, like, smoking it. Like, they're smoking the crack like they're smoking weed. Because, like, you, like I get that excited about smoking weed, which, like, <laughs> is not going to hurt me. Then this excitement, like, smoking crack, like, which I surprisingly know a lot about. Uh, I'm not going not gonna to say why. But, like, smoking crack is, like, not something that you, like, you're just like, whoa! It's time! It's crack time! That's not not how it's done. Also, like, crack isn't smoked at parties. Like, cocaine is for parties. Crack is, like, when you're alone. Like, it's so weird watching a party of people smoking crack. Like, it just doesn't... Like, it just does not make There's sense. There's not, like, a crack o'clock. <laughs> you know, you don't bring it out on a little um, <laughs> little plate. Here's the right. cheese, and here's the crack. Help yourselves. And this came out one year before New Jack City, which New Jack City is very much like a, a crack is killing the Black community kind mm-hmm. of, like, cautionary movie. And I, I remember, like, the first time I ever watched anyone smoke crack in a movie, it was Chris Rock smoking crack in New Jack mm-hmm. City. And he plays this character named Pookie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who is just like this, like... And it's like this whole, like, sad kind of somber thing. And so it's so, like, the, the cognitive dissonance with these women smoking the, the super crack. And, they, and so they smoke the super crack and they're having a great time. And then they just start exploding. Not just ex- regular explode. They explode like firecrackers. Like they're just like popping off. Oh, the effects in this movie are out of control. I quite enjoyed them because I was like, 
what is gonna like their heads are just gonna blow off their arms are coming off their torso just pops out it's intense but it's also like it's very fake like it doesn't feel gory does it no no well i mean i guess that's kind of how it's it's more of an exploitation than a war because it's not trying to scare mm. you. Like there's no way that you know you're going to smoke super crack <laughs> that just kind of like glows kind of like green and blue. <laughs> I just can't get over the super crack. No, the super crack is like it's wild. Like I mean it is hashtag problematic, <laughs> but like you know, so is the whole movie. Um also, I mean, there's so many interesting things in this movie. The brain that he has with the eye in it that he keeps in a tank like a yeah. pet. Like, I kept on waiting for that brain. I wanted that brain to be liberated. I don't think... I wanted... I wanted the brain. I wanted better for that brain. I wanted to know the journey of that brain. How did he get that brain? Whose brain is it? Where did the eye come from? Did he... Get the eye separately and stick it into the brain so that the brain could look. There's a lot of questions about that brain. So many questions. And okay, so he also like creates this estrogen-based blood serum that's like purple goo, <laughs> like Barney the dinosaur purple. Yes. <laughs> and it's just where he where he keeps Elizabeth's head. Yep. <laughs> And but he like brings her back with this. I'd love to know just like the specifics of this estrogen based blood serum. Like, he can only bring back women for some reason, he doesn't have a testosterone version. Also, would the testosterone version be like a more masculine color, like blue or something? <laughs> like, would it be a green? <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, it's the other like super intense scene is the ending and specifically when like Zorro storms into Jeffrey's lab and <laughs> when all of the bits of the sex workers that Jeffrey's been keeping in the purple goo sort of come after Zorro but they're all spliced together oh, oh man oh man that's so good because like he at first, he's kind of like a sweet character. He's just like, my bitches. I love my bitches. Where are my bitches? I'm worried about my bitches. <laughs> and it was it was so good. Well, I was watching it with my fiance, and he was just like, can he call them something other than bitch? And I was like, honey, in this context, bitch is a term of endearment. <laughs> like, for a while, he's just like really sweet. Like, he just seems to really care. And then, like, he gets frustrated at the end and he's just like, you know what? I don't know what's going on, but that's my bitch's arm. That's my bitch's leg. You're my property. <laughs> he just like, he comes to reclaim it. And he's just like saying, I love the part where he's just saying all their yes. names, like Crystal. Because <laughs> <laughs> he says all their names. And then of course the body parts come out of the blood serum. Yeah fridge the fridge full of blood serum just like come after him and then just like pull him inside it's like oh yeah you're looking for your bitches all right here but also he <laughs> has like the the um the bag full of crack and he sort of brandishes it in front of them in the middle of the room 
like he's trying to lure them out which he does kind of yeah like he's just like i know what you want you want the crap you want this crap i love it it's wild it's so good and then like when the when they take him into the fridge and then the hand comes out again just to get the little bag of crack and just sort of laughs i'm not sure how they're laughing because there's not that many heads left in that freezer but (laughs) it's it's an amazing ending for zoro i mean he got what he he got his bitches i mean he did (laughs) they're you they're reunited it's a good it's a happy ending for them yeah yeah (laughs) beautiful ending for zoro and the bitches (laughs) to start wrapping up what are your thoughts about the way that it ends, especially for Jeffrey and Elizabeth? I think that it's a great ending because it's just like, okay, you decided to play God and you decided to put me on this earth in this body that I'm not comfortable mm. in, in this kind of weird, monstrous existence. So guess what? You get to come back in a way that you didn't want to as well. I kind of... Like, I think the ending is actually the best part because it's just like, because there's this whole like undercurrent of like men trying to control mm-hmm. women and then she, <laughs> she controls him. I mean, putting like, well, cause, <laughs> and I also love that, like the body that he puts the body that she puts Jeffrey mm-hmm. in is like a way more cohesive body than hers. Like she, she was way more thoughtful about everything fitting together. She's done a better job than he did. Yeah, she did. Yeah. Well done, Elizabeth. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, once again, hashtag problematic that she like, brings him back like as a woman and like the horror is like where is my johnson <laughs> he's just want to know where his johnson is um but yeah no it's it's fascinating also it reminded me oh just real mm-hmm. quick have you ever seen the skin i live in jordan i worked on that film what <laughs> yeah oh my god as soon as we get <laughs> off this i need i want to have a full conversation about <laughs> yes. this Because that movie, like, I don't even know if I like it, but I've watched it multiple times now, and I just can't stop watching it. I did think about that film while I was watching this, but obviously, like, miles apart. Like, miles apart. I don't want to talk about a Pedro Almodovar film in in the same context as Frankenhooker, but I see what you mean. It uh, It is problematic in so many ways. I think that the ending is fitting for Jeffrey. I think that Jeffrey <laughs> Jeffrey needed to be taken down a peg. And like, you know, I in the context of these films, the idea of woman as something to be dominated. Mm. So like thematically, mm-hmm. him becoming what he controlled is an is a fascinating mm. concept. <laughs> to round off our conversation about both these films. How do you think they fit into our idea of female monsters on screen? You know, honestly, this is like the first time that anyone has asked me to talk about female monsters. And now I kind of like want to do more research into that because it's just something that I hadn't even thought of. And it just opens up Mm -hmm. a whole like collection of films that I can watch. Um, 
but I but I think that I I think that like thematically like in terms of these two mm-hmm. monsters it you know these are women who were created for a certain purpose and then balk at that purpose and reject that purpose so in a sense like you could make the argument that it's you could make the argument that there is that there could be a feminist reading of it where it's like um where they're really reclaiming who they are they're rec- even though who they are was totally created by mm-hmm. a man like their way of they find a way to make peace with it and own it and i think that like in terms of like an emotional journey that's very satisfying mm-hmm. Would you recommend contemporary horror fans seek these films out? Yes. <laughs> I do not regret watching them. Like, they were interesting in a lot of ways. And I, 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 do, rec- I do recommend both of them. Like, for Frankenhooker, you know, you can, you can watch it once. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, like, The Bride is so interesting. Like, if somebody made, like, a mini-series reimagining of The Bride, mm. I would totally watch that so, yeah my god Jordane, thank you so much for your time and for your insight into both of these films where can people find out more about your work online you can find me on twitter at j-o-u-r-d-a-y-e-n um and my, you know i share a lot of links to my work you can look me up on muckrack which is like a journalism portfolio site which has like a which has like almost all of the links to my work i still need to mm-hmm. update it you can listen to my podcast bad romance podcast on lunar light studio great network and you can listen to it on spotify and apple podcasts and everything um i even have some stand-up comedy on youtube that you can watch if you look up my name you'll find it amazing thank you so much thank you for having me and that's it for another episode of the final girls podcast you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you can please do leave us a review on apple Podcasts, and you can find about you can find out more about what we do on the final girls uk and follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at the final girls uk you can also follow jordan on twitter at jordan that's j-o-u-r-d-a-y-e-n and i am often tweeting about crisps on anna be demented thank you for listening and we'll be back next week with a double bill of lady zombies